All right, so we are in John chapter 4, and I want to talk to you about what it looks like to avoid people. Uh, I'm just curious, do you have somebody on your avoid list? Now, as I say that, I don't, like, that's a rhetorical question. I know that everybody in this room has somebody on their avoid list. Like, it's not that hard for me to figure out. Like, there are, there are either groups of people or maybe even individuals in your life that you would prefer to, like, not have to encounter, right? Uh, so uh, maybe uh, on your avoid list, maybe there's, like, telemarketers on your avoid list. Like, if I don't know the number, uh, I just... Like, the person better leave a message for me because I'm not going to try to call them back. Like, I'm just, I'm worried. I don't want to interact with the telemarketer, right? So I don't want to, I want to avoid them, right? Sure, that, that makes sense. How about the, the Ugandan prince who keeps promising you $1 million if you send him $5,000, right? Like you you want to avoid that guy, sure, that makes sense. The dentist, how many of you want to avoid the dentist? I want to avoid the, yeah, there we go. I got somebody in here. Sure, that makes sense. We avoid the dentist. We don't want to deal with whatever the dentist is going to tell us about our teeth. Um, how, how about uh, like that old ex that you saw at Target one time and you like made eye contact and you were like, oh no, and you bolted down the other aisle, right? Okay, I might just be making that story up for me. Uh, how, about, uh, how about anyone who says these words? We need to talk. That, that person is on your avoid list, right? Like, you, you don't want to have that conversation immediately. Uh, or how about that, uh, that family member at family dinners that you only do every once in a while, and uh, they're a little too sure of their opinions about things, right? They're just, like, a little too forceful about what they think. Or how about the pastor? Like, when he says, hey, we should go get coffee, right? That's, he's probably on your avoid list. Uh, okay, so, so, okay, let's flip it. Let's flip it. Have you ever been the person that other people are wanting to avoid? Like, have you been in that position? <laughs> Perry's back there. Like, yeah, that, yeah, I got that. Okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> what is that like? What is that like? Like, if you don't know why they're avoiding you, it could be pretty confusing. Right? You feel like a person's avoiding you. You don't know exactly what's going on. That could create some confusion. But, but imagine you do know why they're avoiding you. You know the reason. You know why they don't want to be around you. And so, in fact, you know when you see them coming, you're very aware of the fact that they don't want to be around you. Right? Like, what's going on? Like, it gets, it's kind of awkward. In fact, there's like a little bit of tension in the situation. You feel the tension. You're afraid of saying the wrong thing to the person because you don't know what they're going to say or how they're going to react. Or maybe it's like it's just frustrating, right? Because human interaction should be easier than like having to tiptoe around things, right? So, so you know that it's not a good experience to be avoided, unless you're really trying hard to be avoided, in which maybe that's what you want. But in general, it's not a good experience to be avoided. Yet increasingly, especially like in our culture today, I think, the message is reinforced for us that we should listen to that impulse to avoid people. Right now, now I'm not saying you shouldn't have wisdom in uh, the kind of people that you uh, choose to involve in your life and the level of depth that you might give a person with involvement in your life. But, but as we talk about this idea of avoiding and being avoided, I would invite us to consider Jesus. 
Because Jesus lived in a day and time where there are a bunch of people providing a bunch of messages about the kind of people who should and should not be avoided. Right? So what we find with Jesus is that time and time again, actually, he went and spent time with and ate with and enjoyed the presence of people who were disliked and overlooked and avoided. Right, so, so here is our, our plan, and this is kind of what we've been doing. We've actually, if you've been paying attention, we have been walking through uh, the story of Jesus and who Jesus is. And so uh, a, a few months ago, we started looking at Jesus in an insidious world, what it means that Jesus actually came to be in this world. And uh, over the last month, we looked at how Jesus made disciples, how we kind of drew people from being casual observers to being engaged followers of him, to, to actually being those who started to pursue his mission and carry out his work. And, and that actually happens. We didn't get to talk about it last week, but, but by the time we get to the process of Jesus, the end of the process of Jesus kind of walking with his disciples, they're actually engaged in doing his work. So at the end of where we ended last week, uh, in, in John chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then it says this little note in verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Right, so as we look at the story of his disciples and how Jesus walked with them, they went from being casual observers to engaged followers to people who were actually pursuing his mission and carrying out his work. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So this is good. Like Jesus has drawn people to pursue his mission. They're carrying out his work. Now this does not mean that Jesus is done shaping them and challenging them. And the primary challenge that's going to come up for the disciples next as he tries to bring them along in his mission is this question. Who is Jesus' mission and message for? Who is Jesus' mission and message for? So maybe you've heard of the parable of the wedding feast before. Uh, Jesus tells this parable at the, uh, in Matthew chapter 22. And I'll just kind of give you kind of the brief overview. A king opened up a big table for his son's wedding. He was going to invite a bunch of people to this table, a bunch of nobles and a bunch of dignitaries, people he really wanted to be there. And there was going to be celebration. There was going to be feasting. There was going to be fellowship. And all of this was for his son who was getting married. And so the king sent his servant to go and invite the people and gather them in to call them to the feast. But the people that the servant went to weren't really interested in coming to the table. They weren't really interested in coming to the feast. No one wanted to come. They ignored the servant. So the servant came back and said, nobody wants to come. And so the king sent all of his servants to the highways and to the byways and to the riffraff of society and said, hey, invite them. If nobody else wants to come, go and invite them. And you know what? Unexpected people, avoided people, started showing up at the king's table. They found a seat at the king's table, and they participated in the celebration of his son. And the point is this. Jesus' mission and message are even for the last person that you would think of. Right, like a space at Jesus' table 
is made even and especially for the rejected and the weak and the nobodies. So today we are starting a new series called Foreigners, Enemies, and Outcasts. And what we're going to do is we are going to watch Jesus. He kind of defies every social norm of his day. Every expectation that people have for who he should bring hope to. Jesus goes to unexpected people and spends time with them and shows them profound love. And then, you know what? Unexpected people start believing in Jesus and following Jesus as the Messiah. Right, so this week, Jesus is going to meet an unexpected woman and then show the great potential for belief in unexpected places. So, uh, so in John chapter 4, Jesus is leaving Judea, and he is uh, leaving Judea for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was there for Passover, but Passover is done. And so it's time for him to leave at the end of Passover. That's the first reason. But number two, his notoriety is actually growing in the land of Jerusalem and Judea. And so he is now leaving this place because he does not want his notoriety in that space to grow too fast because he knows he has great potential to make a lot of people very angry. So he is now leaving Judea to go back to Galilee. Actually, uh, it's likely he's going back to his hometown and the area that he grew up. So, uh, so in John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. He was compelled to. And uh, in the original language, it, the, the word is meant to be like a divine imperative. He did not have a choice. He was directed to go through Samaria. Now, of all the things that one has to do, for a Jewish rabbi, going through Samaria would be about 499th on the list. Right? Like of all the things that he has to do, that is not at all very high. So I just want to show you the route that most Jewish people took uh, to get from Judea up north to Galilee. The route that most people took is the red line that you see. A and if you see inside of that red line, there is this big land called Samaria. And most Jews took this path around Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, that doesn't make sense to you or to me, does it? Like, like that's not a direct route. That, like, why would you go around? Well, Jesus, he took this kind of green line right here. He went through it. He's taking the most direct route. But for what it's worth, in the Jewish mind of the day, Jesus was actually going out of his way, even though he was taking the most direct route. So you, you might ask, why did most Jewish people avoid Samaria? Well, to the Jews, the Samaritans were a corruption of Judaism in every single way. And this history goes way back. So uh, just real, real brief review of history here. Around 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 722, uh, Assyria came in and exiled the northern kingdom and the people of the northern kingdom. And then later after that, uh, Babylon came in and exiled the Jews. So history is a little fuzzy after this, but when Judah was exiled, so, so northern kingdom left first, then southern kingdom was exiled by Babylon. When the southern kingdom was exiled, 
foreigners actually came back in to the northern kingdom. And they began settling in uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so some of the first exiles, actually some exiles who were taken out of that northern kingdom, returned, but they returned there with foreigners. And so what happens? Israelites end up intermarrying with foreigners. And what happens to their religion? Well, they actually, like, they develop a modified version of Judaism. It intermixes with other religions and other philosophies. And then uh, what they actually do as well is they appoint a mountain inside their territory as the temple mount, like the place where the temple should be. Now, that's a problem if you're a Jew from Jerusalem because you know that the temple should be in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans made their own temple mount. And then on top of that, they only follow the, the first five books of the Jewish Bible. They don't want anything to do with the rest of the Jewish Bible. They only want the, the first five books. And so eventually, like the Babylonian exiles, they come and return to their land in the southern kingdom. They rebuild the temple. They restart things the way that they were before. But what happens is you have two... So what essentially started as like a, a national and political rift in 930 by the year 400 BC, had essentially become an ethnic and religious rift as well, right? So there's like kind of layers added on to the rift between these two people. And from the Jewish perspective, in every way, the Samaritans had corrupted what it meant to be Jewish. To the point that, and one, like around 150 BC, the Jews decided that they were going to destroy the temple that was on the mountain in Samaria. So they gathered up and they went and they destroyed that temple. And that event is like the straw that broke the camel's back between these two groups. It like solidified a kind of an everlasting rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. And all of that history provides background for why Jews go around Samaria. Like the Samaritans were false Jews. They had corrupted everything pure about Judaism. And if you're a Jew, you don't associate with Samaritans. You avoid them. You go out of your way to avoid them. And so when it says Jesus had to go to Samaria, this is the situation he's walking into. So verse 6, it says this. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth Hour. So Jacob's well, this is the richest spring that is around. People come from all over to this place to get their water. And Jesus is here to take a rest. So in verse 7, we now get into a personal interaction between Jesus and someone else. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So there are two things to notice or be aware of immediately. Number one, Jewish men, customarily, should avoid talking to women in public. Like, just generally, this is not a, 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 good, a good social thing to do. Even men would avoid talking to their wives in public in some cases. So to be talking to somebody else who was unmarried was really like a big no-no. So Jewish men should avoid talking to women in public. And the second thing to notice is that Jews and Samaritans should avoid talking to each other in public. So as she is approaching him, she sees him, and she knows that she is supposed to be avoided. 
She knows that she is the person that should be avoided. So she walks up to him and the awkwardness starts to build up because she's not expecting anybody to be at this well. The awkwardness wells up. The tension starts to well up. And, and it's actually like who they are is recognizable to the other. Like she can look at him and see that he is a Jew and he can look at her and see that she is a Samaritan. And so she's like coming up, this tension is in there and she's just kind of thinking, okay, I just have to mind my own business. Like I can't make eye contact. I have to just like get in and get out of here very quickly. And then like the second that Jesus opens his mouth, she's like bracing for impact, right? Because if, if a Jew, a Jewish man is going to open his mouth to her, it's probably going to be some sort of like demeaning thing. And he says, give me a drink. And she's a little bit taken aback by that. So taken aback that in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Hey, like, you know you're not supposed to talk to me, right? And if you do, you probably shouldn't convey that you need something from me. Right? If anything, like, you should probably just demean me and move on. And so this is everything that's, like, likely going through her head in this moment. So Jesus' interaction with her is utterly unexpected. In verse 10, it says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Like, I imagine Jesus smiling in this moment. Because he's kind of saying, or she's kind of telling him, you should be playing by the rules, these social rules of avoidance. And then Jesus talks, like, starts talking about himself in the third person. Like, there is, as he is interacting with her, a kind of like open playfulness in this comment back to her. And for what it's worth, his words back to her are incredibly disarming, right? Like he kind of just smiles and says, hey, if you knew who was sitting here, you wouldn't be thinking he probably shouldn't ask me for water. In fact, if you knew who was sitting here, you probably would have asked him for water, you know, the living kind. Now, you may notice, Jesus has a habit of taking a concrete idea that people are very familiar with and using it to illustrate deeper spiritual realities. He did a similar thing. We looked at this last week with uh, Nicodemus. He talked about birth and new birth. So, so understand what Jesus said, because he kind of said with a grin, he would have given you living water. And she heard, he would have given you a river. Right, Because living water, uh, the, the, the phrase is used to refer to rivers or streams in this day. So when Jesus said, he would have given you living water, she hears, he would have given you a river. Right, So there are layers of lightheartedness with spiritual impact here. Jesus talks about himself in the third person. He overlooks and kind of brushes past the incredible social tension that exists. And then he says something silly like, he would have given you a river out here in the desert. And so verse 11 says this. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
So, so Jesus now, by his kind of lightheartedness, by his willingness to walk past all of the social tension and just engage with her, Jesus has effectively broken the tension that existed between them, and she's now playing along. Like, she's now involved in this little joke that he told about living water. So tell me, how are you going to make a river out here? And verse 12 says this, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So, so Jacob, she, what she's saying is, Jacob, hey, Jacob found this spring, and it is still water. Still water is not as good as living water, but it's still water, and it goes deep, and it takes care of people for miles around. Are you greater than Jacob, that you could put a river out here? And verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Right? The people, they have to keep coming back day after day, week after week. Come back, fill up their pots, take them back to their homes. Fill up their buckets, their vases. Like they, they, they keep returning because you keep needing water. You never stop needing water. And so people keep returning to this well time and time again. But let me tell you what I'm really talking about. Verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I'm not talking about rivers in the desert. I am talking about true satisfaction. About life so abundant and so rich in the here and now, like it wells up in the here and now and pushes you over and beyond death. So notice, Jesus is giving her really good news. <laughs> and he is supposed to avoid her, right? Like that's what the social rules tell him to do. But instead he asks her for a drink. And he jokes with her, and he conveys an openness with her, and he gauge, engages her in spiritual conversation, and not just any conversation, but for what it's worth, it is spiritual and theological conversation. So you talk about how men are not supposed to interact with women in public. Well, especially now when you go into the realm of theology, like that is, in, in the Jewish mind of the day, that is a realm that is beyond women. You don't, talk, you don't talk to women, number one, but you especially don't talk to them about theology and about spiritual things. And Jesus is breaking every one of these boundaries. Like it would have been demeaning for his status as a teacher to be talking to her. But I want you to see and understand the operating thought that is inside of Jesus as he interacts with and as he goes to people. It is this operating thought. People are too valuable to let prejudice create gospel barriers. People are too valuable to let prejudice create gospel barriers. So how many times do we think about people that we know and we think, oh, it would be so good if that person believed in Jesus? That person that I really liked believed in Jesus. That person that I'm great friends with believed in Jesus. That person that I relate to really well believed in Jesus. I guarantee you that thought occurs more often than, oh, it would be really great if that person I don't want to be around believes in Jesus. Right, it's clear here 
that Jesus is not interested in any of that. Right? Like, so for what it's worth, I had to be convinced of this one time. Like before, before I lived up here, uh, when I lived back uh, where I grew up, um, southern Illinois, uh, the Lord had actually, he had opened some pretty significant doors for me to have deeper spiritual conversations with a person. Um, and I didn't want to have those conversations with that person because of the people that they spent time with, because of the part of town that they were from, because of the way that he talked, right? And this was my functional belief. He's not worth my time. That's what I believed. And if he's not worth my time, like, who am I to Jesus then? Am I not worth his? What about you? Who's not worth your time? Or who's less worthy of your time than perhaps somebody else? Is it something about how they look? How they speak? Who they spend time with? Where they're from? Is it something about their age? Jesus looks at all of this, and in his mind, he's like, it doesn't matter. They're too valuable to let something like that prevent me from having the most important conversation that could impact the rest of their lives. So Jesus was able to show this woman that in that moment, that he was not going to let prejudice keep a division between him and her. And now he's actually piqued her interest for what it's worth. So now we're going to look at the exchange that follows between this woman and Jesus. And we're not going to go deep into this interaction, but we're going to make kind of five surface-level observations as we walk through uh, the, the woman's response and Jesus and her as they go back and forth. So verse 15, it says this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw this water. She's like, hey, I'm interested. I don't want to have to keep walking back and forth all the time. I would love to have this water that you're talking about. I want this kind of satisfaction that you're speaking of. And so Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. So so the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus helps her See her spiritual need. We're going to see how deep this goes in just a second. But when Jesus is talking about being thirsty, he's talking about being satisfied. And he's trying to show her the place that she is going for satisfaction. So verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, right? He's saying, you have a well that you keep going back to and keep going back to and keep going back to. And guess what? Six times now, it has proven itself to not be satisfying to you. So the second thing, second observation to make here is that even her shameful behavior is not a barrier to Jesus. So, so he's not going to let the fact that she's a Samaritan keep him from her. He's not going to let the fact that she's a woman keep him from her. And he's not going to let her shameful behavior keep him from her. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, 
I perceive that you are a prophet. So she gets a bad rap here for what it's worth. When you hear you pastors and people talk about this passage, they're like, oh, she's trying to change the subject here. She doesn't want to go deeper on this. And I, like, I see where you're coming from, but I think we're reading it a too, like too much through our own eyes of conversation and how we engage. I think what happened here is this. When Jesus talked to her about the well that she keeps going back to, she said, oh, like this guy has something, like he could have something significant to tell me. In fact, I would tell you that in this moment and also based on what she says later, she starts to believe in Jesus when he said, you don't just have no husband, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. She goes, oh, this guy, there's something really important about this guy. And so she says to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like, okay, I'm starting to be convinced right now. So she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's going to go on and she's going to kind of ask some further questions here. But the third thing I want you to notice is that acceptance creates the context for deeper questions, right? Because if she believes in him, if she starts to be convinced that he has something significant for her, then like there's this really serious spiritual question and issue that has to be resolved for her because she is a Samaritan and he is a Jew. And if he has, he has something significant to offer, he has to resolve this whole issue about the division between Jews and Samaritans. Like if you, if you are somebody significant, how in the world can there be this division about, you know, us having our temple here, but you guys came and destroyed it and you having your temple over there and you saying that's where you should worship. So she's, she's asking, like, she's like, okay, I get this guy. And now she wants to know more. She wants to understand. She wants to be taught by him. And so verse 21, Jesus said to her, I'm going to help you resolve this thing. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, for you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but... The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What Jesus just told her is that this mountain, it's not going to matter anymore. That mountain, it's not going to matter anymore. Because the place where people are going to worship will be everywhere. It won't have to do with geography. It won't have to do with what people you're a part of. It won't have to do with where you come from. Every person, people from all places in every place in the earth will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. So number four, the fourth observation to notice here is that God has no room for our prejudice. In fact, he was building a whole system that would completely eliminate the the need for the existence of it, right? Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, which is interesting because Jesus has begun to tell her a lot right now. 
And so in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The fifth observation to notice is this. Unexpected people will see the Messiah. The last person you would think of. The person that you would think you probably should have avoided or shouldn't spend time with. Unexpected people will see the Messiah. Okay, so she's in. She's sold. Like she has seen what she needs to see. She's heard what she needs to hear. So in this moment, the disciples, uh, for what it's worth, they were sent away. They were taking care of getting some food and uh, taking care of other business things, right? And so they come back to this moment where Jesus is interacting with this woman he's not supposed to be interacting with. He's talking to her and they come back and they are awestruck, right? Because of their prejudice that Jesus is sitting and talking to her. Like, I imagine their mouths are agape. Like, there's a look of shock in their eyes. Of course, they don't say anything because they're all too afraid to say something because Jesus would be uh, perhaps maybe frustrated with them. I don't know. For this woman, though, as the disciples come back and encounters their, like, shocked looks, mouths agape, right? Like, she could have been very embarrassed in this moment. But what's really interesting is she is so sold on Jesus that she essentially pays them no mind. And she just goes back to her village. People who know her history. And you know what she says? Verse 29, she says this. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And after she says that, these other Samaritans who are supposed to have no involvement with Jews, they're now interested in seeing Jesus too. So so, so that happens. They they get really interested. They start to believe because of her words for what it's worth. And meanwhile, Jesus is back here and he has to have a word with his disciples because he knows their hearts. He knows their prejudices and he kind of listens to the core of their concerns. And so I want you to listen to what he says to them. They tell him to eat and he says, this situation is too urgent for me to eat. I'm not going to eat right now. And so, so verse uh, 34, they keep urging him to eat. And uh, verse 34 says this, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now I can imagine they don't understand what the deal is here, right? Like my food, no, Jesus, you actually, like you need to sustain your body. Right? They, they went with him to Jerusalem. They finished the Passover. Jesus actually made some people mad in Jerusalem. Right, like There were not a ton of people flocking to follow him out of Jerusalem and go up to Galilee. And so I would imagine in some of their eyes, like they've started to follow them, but, but this is only the beginning. And, and perhaps maybe even in some of their eyes, the things that happened in Jerusalem could be considered to be a failure. Right? They're just not seeing a lot of action. So they're, they're now going through Samaria and they're wondering what in the world could be so urgent that you wouldn't take time to go ahead and eat? Right? Like what could possibly be so urgent? So Jesus helps them understand. Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest? And Jesus is saying like, you think like all of the work is going to happen later, right? Because that's what you do in agriculture, right? You say, it's not time for the harvest. We have to wait four months. There's still planting and tilling to be taken care of. And he's saying, like, you think all the work is coming later. 
Jesus says, and I imagine as he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. I imagine as he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. As he said that, over the hill came tens, hundreds of Samaritans from this village where this woman said, come, let me show you a man who told me everything I ever did. Samaritans coming over the hill, coming to find Jesus, coming to hear what the Messiah has to say. So Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. They're ready. They're ready right now. You just have to look in the right place. Verse 38. He says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Jesus says these people, their customs, their ways of life, the things that they do, this might be very foreign soil to you. They might not be Jews. They might have some form of corrupted religion, but you know what? They're ready to hear about God's salvation. And it's time for you to tell them. So forget about your prejudices. Forget about the fact that everyone has taught you you should avoid them. God does not discriminate who has access to his kingdom. And if you have the opportunity to have a a spiritual conversation and share good news with them, then do it. So verse 40, it says this. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. All right, so what? So what? Number one. Stop writing off the unexpected people, right? Like who in your mind, as you think about like the people God is calling you to reach, even as we do this opening up our tables thing where we're inviting people to come and sit at our tables, who do you consider to be irrelevant? Like who is the person that you think, oh, well, I could open up my table to them, but they wouldn't make a very big impact for the kingdom. Who is the person who is weak by the world's standards, I think I read something somewhere that says God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Maybe there's a person who is the last person you would expect to respond to the gospel. And maybe they're just the person that you need to open up your table to. So stop writing off the unexpected people. Number two, strive to see people instead of categorize them. Right? There is a ploy of the devil today to tell us that what we need to do when we uh, hear a person speak and when we see them interact is we need to take them and categorize them into a group, not see them as individuals in need. Right? So if they're another political party, there's no need to love them or even speak to them because we've put them in a group. If they're a part of another culture, there's obviously no value in learning something of that culture. They're in another group. They're going to stay over there. If they're gay, they're the kind of people who uh, our family uh, doesn't engage with. Or if they're uh, against homosexuality, then uh, we shouldn't befriend them because they, they're kind of bigoted and they don't have any mindset. If they're pro-choice, they're duped and cannot be friended. If they're pro-life, they're old school and out of touch. If they're not vaccinated, they, do, they, they, they don't follow the science, right? They're irrational. And if they are vaccinated, they're dupe and they're, they're lemmings, right? They're all of these things. When we hear about what a person does and how they associate, we want to put them into that group and define them based on that group. So who is a group you feel most comfortable to avoid? 
What group of people is not worth your time? What group makes you uncomfortable? For what it's worth, showing love does not mean giving approval. Like Jesus did not approve of the lifestyle of this woman, yet it is clear in his speech that he loved her regardless of the fact that they were in different groups. So note, just take a note. If anyone could make a legitimate group out of people, it would be Jesus. Righteous and sinful. If anybody stands to make a group and define who people are and separate them from one another, it's Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He enters in to the sinful group. He meets with us. He opens up tables with us. So uh, that will lead us into our third one, and that third one is this. Remember how Jesus didn't avoid you. And with that word, I want to pray. Father, I am grateful that you would take time to convict us and instruct our hearts and teach us how to go towards the people that we might consider to be other from us that we might be tempted to place into a group that we might be inclined to avoid. I'm grateful that you've given us a salvation that does not discriminate. Because if it did, we would all be in a sorry place. But instead, you've opened up space for us. You've welcomed us. You said, believe in me and have eternal life. And you've given that to, to people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every group. That there's the opportunity there to trust in and follow you. That is really, really good news. And I pray that you would encourage our hearts with it this morning. Even as we come to the table and prepare to receive the gifts that you have to offer. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, he actually, he didn't avoid us, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. It says, look, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the communion table, it is a reminder to us that we were not ignored, we were not avoided, but that Jesus gave up his high position and became like us, and not only became like us, but served us, and not only served us, but allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that he could invite us into life with him. The table is a reminder of these things. So in a moment, what's going to happen is that we are going to take a moment of uh, reflection together. There will be some silence, some, some quiet music while you reflect. And the reflection is just an opportunity for us to be grateful, to be thankful for what Jesus did. 
And so then uh, after you've taken some time to reflect as you feel led, you can come up to the table. You can uh, take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice, and then return to your seat. And the bread and the juice to us are reminders to us of the bread being a reminder of Jesus's broken body, the juice being a reminder of Jesus's shed blood, the things that invited us into relationship with him, the price that was paid for our sins so that we could have a place with God. So, so we're going to take these reminders, we'll sit with them, and then um, after we've had some time to reflect, we've had some time for everybody to come to the table, uh, then Garth is going to lead us to eat and drink together. Then after we eat and drink together, we are going to respond in worship. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he lifted it up to heaven, he blessed it, he gave thanks for it, And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then the Apostle Paul, as he kind of reflects on this meal, as he writes to the church about it, he says, uh, he says to the people who do this, he says, as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, that you together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What he was willing to endure, to invite people who should have been ignored and avoided into relationship with him. Alliance Bible Church, I would invite you to receive these words as we receive the benediction today. These come from the book of Colossians chapter one, and this is what it says. It says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Alliance Bible Church, thank you so much for worshiping with us. It has been a true pleasure and joy to worship with you. Amen. Amen.